Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Ask the Industry podcast, episode 132. I'm comedian Simon Kay, and for those of you new to the show, this is the podcast where I interview the most influential people from the worlds of stand-up, comedy, radio, and today, crowdfunding. Jess Massart, who is the senior lead at Kickstarter for the Dance and Theatre Projects section. Comedy, just so you're aware, is in the same category as theatre on Kickstarter. She collaborates with artists and organisations on campaigns and tries to make sure that they are not just going after money with campaigns, they're actually telling their story and they are able to tell their story in the most efficient way possible. I've done crowdfunding campaigns in the past and I would have loved to have known that there was a team there that helped me, that are there to support me and get me through it and also to assist me in terms of a strategy. I found chatting to her really interesting. I really liked her point of view on it. As someone who sees hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of crowdfunding campaigns over every year that she's there, it's really interesting to get her take on what works, what doesn't work, what mistakes people make, what tools people aren't using, all of that good stuff. We also got into their relationship with the Edinburgh Fringe. They were an official partner this year and uh, we were talking about why that partnership came about and what it was there for in terms of the business of Kickstarter and in terms of the Edinburgh Festival itself. I liked, um, I don't want to ruin this bit because it's good for you to hear direct from the horse's mouth, but if you listen all the way through, you'll hear the business model of Kickstarter and the, the way that they have set themselves up so that they are not beholden to shareholders. It is literally written into the company itself and anyone who buys a share is aware of the company not looking after shareholders above creators. It's a really interesting interview. I think everyone who wants to crowdfund or is looking into doing it will get a lot out of this. I think that that uh, if you want to crowdfund for an Edinburgh project, this is probably the best platform you could do it on, and Jessica is here to help you do that. Her email address is listed in the show notes, so if you want to get hold of her to ask any more questions, you can. She is more than happy to answer any and all queries you might have, but maybe wait until the end of the episode so that you uh, know if we've already asked that question and you don't have to ask her again. Right, now let's jump into it. But before we do, please don't please do remember to hit that but before we do, if you're new here, please remember to hit that subscribe button. If you're old here, please do remember to give us an honest, ideally positive review in iTunes. And either way, please do consider joining the Facebook group. It's called Ask the Industry Podcast and it's on Facebook. Obviously. It's the best place to ask your questions to future guests. Now without any more delays, this is Jess Massart. 
our relationship with the Edinburgh Fringe for the 2019 festival was, you know, it incorporated so many different elements. I think we were looking at ways that we could provide further support and education. So everything from the roadshow that we did here in New York for New York-based artists, we did a fringe cast with the Edinburgh Fringe on development and marketing. Artists were given one-to-one support. If you launched a campaign, you pretty quickly got an email from me saying, hello, here are a couple of tips, things you need to know as you're running your campaign. Um, and we were also pledging to campaigns. So we pledged money to the different campaigns to ensure that there was just a little bit more cushion and it was a little bit easier to hit the goal. So we really, we tried to dig in and find as many different ways as we could to not only give artists the support that they needed, but some some room to breathe, which actually carried through to Edinburgh itself. Uh, during the festival, we helped sponsor the Respite Room at Fringe Central. And when my colleague Taylor and I were there, we were doing some office hours and even took a couple creators for a hike one day just oh. to, yeah, get them out of the fray a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I, I joined a gymnast fringe for the first time and it was good to take 40 minutes a day to get out of the headspace. Yeah, and, and there's a lot of hills here. So many, I forgot about that. And then this year, about day two of the friend is like, oh, yeah, my calves, they're, they're, that muscle memory is kicking in. <laughs> yeah, definitely. definitely. <laughs> So, so are you, I don't know the full relationship, so are you an official partner with The Fringe or is it like you have just worked with, because I know you can rent spaces at The Fringe Central to just put on talk, but I also know they partner with certain organizations. So is it, a, is it an official thing that, you know, if they've got a problem, they can go to Ed Fringe or you? Like how, how does that relationship work? Yeah, we were an official partner of the 2019 Edinburgh Festival Fringe. So we were there on an official capacity. I mean, I think we, for years and years, had wanted to work more closely with the Fringe since Kickstarter's very first year in operation 10 years ago. One of the earliest projects was an Edinburgh Fringe campaign. So we've known from the very beginning that this is an important place and an important community of artists for us to support. Have you noticed a a growth in people trying to crowdfund for not just Edinburgh, but is it other festivals around the world? Is it predominantly because Edinburgh is, I think it is the biggest in the world and also it's the most expensive by proxy. So is it a case of people are funding other places or are you finding it's just Edinburgh? They're funding other places as well. I mean, when we look at the wider fringe network, we do see fringes across the UK, across the United States, and even to Australia and beyond. Outside of that network, I mean, coming up into January here in New York, the festival Under the Radar, the Exponential Festival, we see representation in these festivals as well for people who are working their way there and need a little extra support. So, so you must have a first-hand knowledge of the cost that it, it takes for participants to go to the Fringe and the increase in that year on year. Oh, absolutely. I mean, even just personally, when I was in high school, my high school theatre company, we had an invitation to go to the Edinburgh Fringe, like had a venue, we're all set up, but like we're a pack of high school kids can't afford it and like never mind the chaperoning issues but the actual cost of going was preventative for us Mm. and I think as somebody who before Kickstarter worked as a producer worked in development and marketing it's it's an enormous cost to be there and I think all parties understand that and so yeah I mean I think crowdfunding becomes a way that you can take a little chunk out of that and also build your community at the same time 
Completely, completely. And, and I, think, uh, I think there's two worries that have come out of questions that I've got from my community about crowdfunding. One is the stigma of crowdfunding and, and sort of being an artist who's, who's begging, if you like, for people to sponsor them early when they haven't finished the show, maybe, or, or created the thing. And two, the worry that they have in losing face in not making enough money if they, if they don't have a wide enough community to support that. And I wondered what Kickstarter are doing to, to deal. I mean, obviously, the stigma is moving anyway, I feel. It, it used to be much more that crowdfunding was a, was a you know, a sort of the choice of whatever. But um, what are you guys doing in terms of moving that perception? Uh, obviously, other than donating yourselves, um, do you think more people get donations from being on the site, like from people who aren't in their community, but just sponsor the arts? Like, how, how is that going yeah, I mean, we try to uplift as many individual campaigns, but, you know, the general narrative around the fringe as we can. So we do have a collection page that sends people who are interested in supporting Edinburgh Fringe projects. They can go through and whatever is live, support them. And I think it's, we're such a visible platform that there are those individuals that swim through to look for what is intriguing, what is catching my eye. And I think even outside of what we can do beyond marketing promotion, a lot of the tools that we've built into the platform try to help guide artists, creators, comedians through approaching this in a way where you're right, it's not about begging, it's about storytelling, which is what this community is particularly good at. Mm. And it's kind of getting into the mindset of like, right, I might be crafting a set or something for the stage, but how can I take that same frame of mind and put it into how I'm approaching this campaign, both on the page, in the video, in the rewards, and then off, off of that? Like, what are you doing in email and social media? And how, how do you deal with, so say, for example, I, I have a friend who did a crowdfunding campaign a little while ago where he batch sold tickets to, like, uh, companies to try and, like, get people in the door early. As much as that's exciting because it means you know how many people are, or, you know, there's a certain number of people coming, the fringe central lose out on the box office money and the money that's going through in terms of their fees. How do you balance that out with them, like, either directly in the past or, or so directly now or indirectly in the past? Mm -hmm. I'd say most artists actually don't end up offering tickets for that reason because the tickets, the control over them is held by another party and whether that's in the case of Edinburgh French or honestly most festivals tend to work that way and if you're offering tickets it has to come out of either a comp allotment or you as the person making the show end up having to buy the tickets which feels a little silly. We end up trying to make suggestions or help you think about rewards in a way that do get people in through the door. Um, I don't think this quite applies in the same way to Edinburgh Fringe, but if you are running a campaign for a show and you can offer a pre-sale, you know, work with your venue to say, hey, can my people have an extra week, get tickets and get ahead of the crowd? Things like that can be great, but also looking for other opportunities to just suggest the personality of the project. Sadie Clark ran a campaign this last year for her piece Algorithms at the Fringe mm -hmm. and had a great, it was just a $1 reward that was conceptual. It was like this character from the show will come do a special birthday dance in your dreams. And like you get a little sense of, I mean, yes, Sadie, yes, this character, the playfulness of it, and it invites people to participate. So. It's a little bit of looking for that, like what are the conceptual opportunities? What are the other experiences? Can you hang out with people after the show over a pint? Can you send them the Spotify list of what you're listening to as you warm up before the show, just so that they can kind of get into your world or curate a reading list? 
there's so much that goes into the process of creating a piece that you can go through that archive and lift up some of those elements, which are really interesting to people. We're in an era where, I mean, you see because of social media, you see it in the kind of stories that are presented in the news, people are interested in who you are, what you are bringing to the table. And so other kinds of rewards beyond tickets become a nice way to kind of shine a light on some of those elements that people may not otherwise get to see. Yeah, totally. Because a lot of people, uh, it would appear anyway, because I'd look at your landing page, and a lot of them, it was their first um, crowdfunding, just trying it out and seeing how it works. And obviously, maybe it's their first time in Edinburgh. So that's doubly scary for, for them in terms of they probably put the money down and now are having to recoup it a bit. But your personability level and, and hands-onness, do you read every campaign? Do you watch every you know video that goes on the campaign page? Do you pick the staff picks? Like, and how, how much does that benefit people? Like, what, what's you know kickstarter's role in in helping mold campaigns i mean would you ever give someone feedback and say I'm not sure you know that's gonna you know long term that's gonna be good or, or is that is that not your jurisdiction do you just let people put what they want on it i mean i i personally i love to get in with campaigns before they launch just so that I can try to circumnavigate that. Once you're live, you're usually just focused on sharing this thing out because there are only so many hours in the day and some of those hours you might be doing, you know, a day job or sleeping, you know, little things. But a little known secret of Kickstarter is that every single morning we get a list of everything that has launched the day prior. So I do go through every day and come through what is launched in dance and theater and performance art, uh, comedy is included within theater. And yeah, I look through to kind of get an eye on the campaign, like, okay, does it have imagery? Are they telling their story well? Is there a video? Are there enough rewards? And when I see a campaign that I think can perform really well, it's intriguing, like it's all put together, I'll send pretty particular feedback. Okay, I think you need one more reward at 25 pounds. It'd be great to learn a little bit more about why this piece is important to you or what inspired it. And just to like try to nudge them in the right direction and then kind of be open to any questions around outreach and kind of what they are doing to actually promote the campaign. Yeah. Do, do you get involved in the, the PR element of a campaign? So if you, uh, what relationship have you got with press? And like if, if there was a, a campaign covering certain uh, minority or, or a group of people and you knew that press were looking or do, or do you not even deal with the press? You just, that's, that's the job of the campaign manager. Most of that falls onto the campaign manager. I, in, in my role, I will kind of, if I see a story that I know our PR people are looking for. I will lift the campaign up over to them so that they have it on their radar. They know that they can be pitching it out. I'll be the one requesting images, things like that. So I do do that work. I also, even you asked this earlier, but I'm the one who marks things as a project we love within my categories. So that does help a bit because you know most of Kickstarter runs on algorithms. So when you have that badge, it just helps our site's algorithms know, okay, this is a good one. We want to be serving this up in front of people. And whether that's within the category pages or on the homepage it'll do some of that work for you. Completely, completely. And, mm -hmm. and when people are setting their targets, should they be trying to cover everything or just the show costs or the higher cost? Like what, what's realistically, because obviously if you set your goal for, you know, a lot of shows cost five grand and up. And if you set your goal for everything, you know, you might have to list out where are you staying and what bed are you renting so that everyone knows what your money's going towards. I mean, how transparent should people be? 
and how much money should they really be asking for? Like, what should they be trying to cover? Yeah, they should be very transparent um, is <laughs> the, the, the best thing you, I can say about all components of the campaign. Be transparent about where you're coming from, what the goal really covers, why you need it, the, all of it. We really, in so many different ways, encourage that across all campaigns. I mean, at this point, I think in 2019, the average goal or average raise, rather, was I think just under four thousand pounds. So it doesn't quite cover the full budget, the full everything, which is pretty typical even outside of fringe campaigns. Performance is expensive. You're dealing with people and time and space and so many other materials. And when you're looking at doing a month-long run with all of those components, it adds up quite a bit. So. When you're setting a goal, one question is, okay, what is a meaningful amount? What will actually allow me to do this? And whether that's like, I, I need the full budget because I don't have any wiggle room or I just know that I need 3,500 pounds in order to sleep at night and to like cover the base of it and I'll pull together the rest from box office or what have you. You want that number to be something that feels realistic. It feels manageable. A uh, campaign can be stressful. And if you set a goal that you feel good about hitting and that you feel is within reach, it'll take the edge off of that a little bit. It can also be helpful to think about how many people you think will back a campaign. The, the average pledge is uh, $75, which I think is something like 60 pounds. Forgive my bad conversion, but it's in that range. So if you think like, okay, I feel comfortable that 50 people will give to the campaign. Okay, so then maybe 3,000 pounds is a really comfortable starting place for you. Mm -hmm. And if you are pushing above that, you know that I need to incorporate an outreach strategy that gets beyond my initial friends, family, performance network, and helps me reach out a little bit further. Completely. I, I um, am a big fan of Seth Godin's A Thousand True Fans Theory and, and the concept of trying to get them to that. Equally, I'm aware that getting a thousand people to donate to a crowdfunding campaign is often, a, well, it depends on the size of your audience, but mm -hmm. for, the, for the majority of acts doing stuff like this, it's not necessarily a viable thing to, to do. However, we can all, we can all hope. We would all love to have that. <laughs> And, and it was interesting that 75 pounds, because that will, that will also depend on what uh, rewards are being offered in that price range. So do you find that people don't often opt for the, like you said, the pound reward? You know, a lot of people mm -hmm. just put that in because it's nice that friends can chip in a pound if they want to, and you might get a thank you email, but that's about it. So do you find that it's, it's what's it worth like stretching out your goals for? Like, how, how would you recommend or what advice would you give on that? There are a couple of tiers that we like to see within a range of usually you want somewhere between seven and 10 tiers. Seven is kind of a, like if you're going to aim for one number, I would say about seven. Um, like a 25 pound is a really good one to have. For some, it's a really meaningful stretch. For others, it's just an easy like, right, you have this. And then something closer to like a 75 or a hundred pound. Just it's a, again, a stretch for some you may not see as many people giving there, but it tends to be a more lucrative level for you. Besides that, your, your span should really incorporate how much you think people will be giving or you hope people will be giving. And so making sure that you do have something that is accessible. So whether that is a one, a five, a 10 pound, whatever that looks like, 
And then thinking of within your network, major donors. Okay. Is it going to be somebody capping out at a 500 pound or a thousand including that? And I just because I think we all operate on some level of hope in this industry, including one level above, like just in case. So if you feel like realistically somebody's going to maybe give you a thousand pounds, fabulous, include one at 2000 or 2,500 because you just never know if people will be inspired to go a little above and beyond and also who might just discover your project and be interested. Completely. completely you know, the, the, have there ever been any case studies of someone? Uh, maybe, maybe do you have, uh, I, I don't know if you would even have this on a mailing list thing because I know you have a mailing list of, you know, where you send out campaigns, but do you have like, do you monitor that of like, there are some big spenders or there are some big directors or, or people who look out for shows and are actively going, well, actually, I want to direct this show. I'll pay two grand to do the direction. <laughs> do, do you have that sort of information? Do you ever follow it like that? Or I don't think we follow it down to a, a micro individual that way. We Just do. <laughs> <laughs> there is a community on Kickstarter that I think not many people know about, and we call them super backers. And these are people who have supported, oh, I think it's more than 35 projects. And I think you're supposed to do it within a certain window of time. And I want to say that's a year or so. These people do from time to time get more specific campaigns, get sent to them, different kinds of communication. So it is a community of people that we have our, our eye on and we look to, to help out in their search for things to back within the the kind of different people that might be a, like interested in participating i mean you mentioned director but i think producer mm -hmm. is the one that sneaks in and the term producer can mean so many different things i think the people who want to sign on to be have like a producer credit is sometimes the most interesting and if you are trying hoping to capture some of those folks including that as a potential reward can be a nice way to be like okay i see you you want to participate i've got you like you have 2500 pounds and you can come on as a producer or have in name at the very least yeah yeah do you, it's kind of an odd question, but it's one that's come up a few times in the emails I've been getting. Do you take less commission for an Edinburgh Fringe funded campaign than you would do a normal one? Or does that ever adjust for an independent show versus say a book or a, or a, a fitness app or, or something like that? So the fee on Kickstarter is just our fee. It's the 5%. And the way that we tried to mitigate that this year was by pledging to campaigns. To remove the fee is a whole other bear of the system that we have in place. So pledging to campaigns became our way of bringing that fee down. Mm. Do you have a list of underused tools and facilities that you offer either personally you um, as, as someone who works there or on the site that you think people just they just either don't know enough about or they're just not using enough? Yeah, I would definitely include myself in that where <laughs> myself and the, the team that I'm on this kind of outreach team where we have somebody representing each category. I think we are unfortunately a, a well-kept secret outside of our walls. So like I am here to help and at the very least point you towards resources. Like we have a, a six week prep guide to like here are your deadlines for each week that I've put together. That's it's online, but like let me give that to you. Let me help <laughs> you before you launch to make sure that you're ready and thinking strategically about it. Besides that, I think one of the exciting things about Kickstarter and about crowdfunding is that it's an opportunity to understand your network in a different way. And maybe some of that is about how they're giving and supporting you but 
also what of your own tools are working well. So we have some Kickstarter specific reference, reference tags. And while we can help show you like, okay, this many people are coming from Facebook or from direct or email, you can make your own. These self-generated reference tags are something I don't see most people using. You know, if you send out an email and, you know, you're testing out a different approach to it, like you've kept it swift, you've done it in the voice of your character, and you just want to see how that performs, turning that into its own reference tag so that you can track that. And even if somebody, you know, forwards that email, you continue to see the impact that it had. Or if you have a team of ambassadors who are helping share your campaign, how, what kind of impact are they having? So just so you can gauge for the future, in, in your own promotion, in your own fundraising, where should I be spending my time and effort? Because like, I might tell you like, okay, Instagram, I usually see nothing coming from there. It's just so hard to take action on it. Maybe you found a way to make that work for you. And it's worth tracking that. So I'd say that's the biggest one that I would love to see people using more of. Updates are really like simple base function that just is a way to keep in touch with people and to keep in touch with them in a way where you are just communicating with them. You're not making another ask of them. You're not asking them to buy a ticket, anything like that. You're just kind of keeping them in the world of what you're doing and forming a relationship with them. That all said, I think we have some product features coming out that I cannot talk about just yet to keep an eye on the Kickstarter blog because I think they will be very very helpful. Um, some are related to budget and helping you think about what that number is and how it's presented on the platform. That one actually just came out this week. So okay. peak. <laughs> I, will, I will link it in the show notes. Equally the other way around, do you think there are any features that have not become cliche, but just people have overused and so they're now less impactful because when you're on, maybe when you're working on your page, you think, oh, this looks amazing. But when everyone's been browsing for ages and it comes up on everyone's page, it's maybe just losing a little bit of its edge. This is another like, why? sweeping one but I think the video tends okay. to be where people put most of their time and energy it's unnecessary you still you do want to use the video as a nice opportunity to talk straight to your audience or maybe to make like a mini commercial that you can be using to promote the show after the campaign anecdotally I see about 30% of videos actually get watched to the end so where you should be putting your time and energy is more onto the page itself. Do you have images to represent, you know, things from the drafting phase, from when you're rehearsing, inspiration, things like that, that visually tell your story? It's kind of, it's how we all experience the internet now where we land on a page and pretty quickly we're scrolling, you know, like you want to give people those footholds and taking the time to tell the story. I see a lot of campaigns that are pretty short. Well, that's that's okay. We, we love something brief. You do want to make space to talk about who you are, what you're doing, why you need support, what going to Edinburgh and the Fringe really means for you. Because it does mean something different, I think, to everybody. Completely, yeah. And, and everyone's um, not just got their own monetary goals, but they've got their own personal goals for what they want from this festival and from uh, everything around it. Um, in terms of, I mean, that sort of brings me on neatly to the, to the sort of a, a bit of a nitty gritty question. And I don't know fully whether, whether Kickstarter would um, get involved this much, but what comes first? Do you, do you go and get a venue and or, or sort out the show and then crowdfund? Or do you work out roughly what you think? Because obviously you need to know how much it's going to cost before you can do it. But then, then you're on a time scale when the venue needs to know 
whether you can even do it. Uh, you know, like when when's a good time to even launch a because also, also the other thing I was thinking about was if you launch a crowdfund in September October when you might be getting when I generally sort out my venue for next year mm-hmm. that feels so early for people to even be thinking about supporting a show for the following year that even though I know how much I'm now spending I don't feel like it's worth launching it and because they've just finished the last one everyone's sort of still tired so w- what's your thoughts on all of that oh good question so I find most people lock down the venue and then run their campaign this year while we had a few people come in early in January I think there was somebody who launched just after the first of the year the bulk of campaigns run somewhere between March and July with a heavy concentration towards the end of May to the middle of July so it still is pretty close and tight to the festival I mean I, I always encourage people to have at least a couple months buffer between when they're running the campaign and when they're actually performing, especially for something as intensive as Fringe, where you need some space to Mm -hmm. get yourself ready and to just kind of clear your mind, be present, ship things if you need to, like Mm -hmm. organize details, and to also have the comfort of knowing the money is in the bank. So if you can, like March, April, I think is a great time. People are already starting to think about it. The shows are being announced. Like it's, it's top of mind. But you did point to something interesting, which is do you fundraise earlier when the show is more just a show? And we do, we do see that in some cases. I think what you start to miss out on being tied into the narrative of the fringe, because I think even for people who are not of the theater or comedy world, there's an understanding around the Edinburgh fringe in particular that this is a moment. This is a huge thing to go and participate in. Okay, like they get that and they get that in a different way. So while you can definitely run a campaign when you're more in like a research and development phase, for Edinburgh Fringe, if you know that's where you're tracking and you feel like you can wait, I think sometimes running in that in that year can be a nice way of approaching it. Yeah, and, and I... Uh, the, the interesting thing about what you said there for me was because I've done it sort of the last four years in a row and I was thinking if I did a campaign in let's say May, June and it finished around that time mm-hmm. I, you, you realistically you probably would want your reward if it's a, even if it's a badge or something like that before the festival because after it it's sort of missed its moment so then you've got instead of your month of sort of last minute planning and getting everything sorted mailing badges out and sorting out little nitty gritty things for, for that so so it's even down to it's not just a cash flow thing it's a, it's an emotional labor thing that I think a lot of people who are crowdfunding or a lot of people are thinking about crowdfunding from the conversations I've had are not thinking about that mm-hmm. yeah and oh I mean this is like thank you for setting me up for this this is my pitch to not do physical things that you need to mail out because oh god you have better things to be doing with your time and most people aren't actually interested in them i think there is when you're at the fringe especially for fans an interest in badges maybe you're making some and you know that you will distribute them there but no i mean when you only have a few weeks before you need to be heading to edinburgh and you're trying to start into a mailer like mm -mm, there's better things for you to be doing with your time at that Mm -hmm. point absolutely um you also do drip which is sort of your... No, you don't want to talk about that? <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, we actually just shut down Drip last... Oh, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. 
I was actually talking to a friend who was on it very early and he was he was saying that he, he enjoyed it. So okay, I didn't know you shut it down. Yeah, we it's it's been a, a funny rid- journey. But yeah, uh, RIP drip. Why why would you take it down? Let's ask that question then. Yeah, we what we wanted to create with it was a platform that wasn't only about ongoing sustainable support, but also uh, a way of helping people discover work. Mm-hmm. And we thought there's enormous potential around that because while there are other, you know, ongoing giving platforms, not ones that are based on discovery, which is part of what Kickstarter has always been. Mm-hmm. And we we found after about a year that, oh, oh, right, this is its own thing. It has its own life and it actually needs its own company to, okay. to do it properly because we were trying to not only like continue iterating on Kickstarter and building it to be better, faster, all the things, but trying to keep this thing moving along mm. so we gave it to gave it feels like such a funny term we gave a website and a business to our former um chief tech officer who'd been wanting to make something like this for a long time he also is like you know the finding the right way to do this in a way where it is you know sustainable on its own became really tricky so instead of continuing to put money into it we're like you know we're we're gonna leave this as it is there are platforms, you know, Patreon, et cetera, that, that do this and serve the community. We're, we're going to keep our focus, this kind of, you know, 30-day-ish crowdfunding and support. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think for a lot of folks, and especially if you are a, a generative artist, if you are a comedian, if you have a podcast or a blog, something where there are things being released pretty regularly, it's a great format for mm-hmm. you. And it's still like, it intersects nicely with crowdfunding as well. I mean, the is Mystery Science Theater a thing in the UK? I'm aware of it. I don't know how many other people are. Okay. So. It's a, a, a movie, like old, bad sci-fi movies with commentary on them uh, has a cult following here in the US they were on drip for a minute but somewhere in the first year of their presence on the platform they actually ran a Kickstarter campaign mm-hmm. and they're like well we love you thank you fans we're about to do this huge big thing over here and we actually want you to help make this happen and to be part of the community around this and there are interesting ways to flow people over making the first 48 hours 24 hours just about them rewards that are only open during that kind of window Mm. yeah yeah like the the time sensitive rewards if you like Mm -hmm. exactly hello just interrupting the podcast slightly for your mid-roll ad and banter I'm really enjoying putting this one together. This is, for someone like me who's a bit of a social media nerd, and by a bit I mean a mega social media nerd, I'm really enjoying talking about community and storytelling and crowdfunding with someone who does it every day and knows a lot more about it than I do. I hope you're getting a lot out of this as well. If you want to learn more about social media and building a community online, you can get my book, How to Make a Living by Working for Free. It's £5 digitally or £13, including postage, on my website. There are links to that in the show notes. Alternatively, you can give me a donation of £5 or more on paypal.com and I will email you asking if you'd like a copy of the book included in your donation. So loads of ways of getting it there. You can also become a patron and um, leave us a review. I mean, you, you know all the things you can do by now. You, you must know everything you can do by now that allows you to support this podcast. Something you can also do is get your fast forward button ready because here comes the mid-roll ad. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. What a great product and or service. I have been getting a few emails from people saying you put in the mid-roll bit but that we're not getting an advert. Um, not everyone will get an advert. So just so that, you know, there's a bit of clarification here. My podcast is on the Acast network which is essentially an ad platform. So if, for example, in the month of January when this one goes live, if Acast managed to find someone to buy the ad space that I've assigned in the middle and at the start of each episode, then I get a bit of money. Usually it's something like £10 for the month. If you don't hear an advert, it means that they haven't sold an ad and it means I'm not getting paid. So if you didn't just hear an advert, or even if you did, please Please do consider giving me a one-off donation or becoming a patron because it means I get money for doing all the work and for all the value that you get from these episodes. We're climbing up right now. We're heading very quickly to episode 150. So if you have been listening for a while or even if you're a new listener and you're getting some value out of these, please do consider giving me a donation. Every donation of any amount really helps out to keep this project going that's just that's just something from me to you essentially if you haven't heard an advert or there wasn't an advert on this episode or on previous ones it's because i didn't make any money on it but i had to leave the ad gap for the platform to install an ad if they sell the one right so that's my dog barking lovely I'm looking forward to the second half of this. We're going to dive straight back in with Jess. We're going to be talking about really nitty-gritty stuff in the next bit. So if you're thinking about doing a crowdfunding thing, especially for an Edinburgh show, this is perfect for you because we're going to be talking about what time of the year to do the campaign, what time of the month, the day, even down to like looking into what could fuck up your campaign. So it might be that you have a perfectly good one that covers and ticks all the boxes, but you just did it at the wrong time of the month for people or you asked for too much or could be anything anything but we're going to dive straight back into this and hopefully this will help you out on your crowdfunding campaign that's yeah because i mean i'm on patreon for example um and that's sort of um uh, jack conti's version of of 
drip essentially i don't fully know the chronology of all of those websites and how they work and stuff but i was wondering whether that's something that if you are an artist who says going every year and you produce media around shows you're doing for example uh, you do a podcast that you know um richard herring does a lot of podcasts around his uh, individual shows and like produces those sort of things so i wondered whether you had any thoughts on shows building a little bit of a, a, a base of people who are supporting them throughout the year rather than just one big hit i mean i think there's a place for both a friend of mine who is a lifelong fundraiser once said something about how once somebody gives a second time, they are 80% more likely to continue giving. Mm. So when you get somebody into the mindset of like giving every month, Mm -hmm. you know, even if they're not really doing it consciously, if it's just kind of like, like disappearing out of their bank account, you have that in that mindset of like, I'm just going to keep supporting this person. I, I think there's a case to be made for doing both. And certainly, as I talk to artists who are on these kind of platforms like Patreon, having a little bit of funding coming through the door regularly does help you think about your practice in a different way. Even if it just means that like, hey, once a month, you can go and get yourself a really nice lunch. You like every few months, you're able to buy a new piece of equipment that you need, like that does make a difference. And it makes it easier when you need to make a bigger ask to actually go back to those people. Completely. And, and also, you've got a little bit of a pre-made base there where you can say, I have this bigger thing I'm working on. Would you like to help me with it? Yeah. And it's so, I think there's a unique challenge in comedy and theater, dance, kind of performance in general where we we perform for crowds and sometimes really big ones but often we don't get the contact information for those people you know that's held on to by the venue and in the age of gdpr it's gotten even harder Mm -hmm. to get that like the email addresses so any opportunities you have to make that connection and to hold that relationship is really really important because it's just it's something that i see especially here even here in the states where gdpr is still is kind of like shifting question mark although kickstarter very gdpr compliant (laughs) that plug it's still difficult to do that and i mean at the end of the day what people care about what they are coming for is you you as the person who is up on that stage and making this thing yeah so any opportunities to own that you've got to no it's why it's why i i about three four years ago started focusing on a mailing list over any other social media partly because it's so much more customizable and because people read their emails like you're more, you we're missing tweets right now there's really good ones out there <laughs> But 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 you'll you'll get to your inbox and go. Oh, I've got a re-. Like, even if you're not happy about it. Everyone sits there in the morning and goes, "What's in my inbox?" And I'll and I'll at least power through it. Um, and it's nicer. It means they can reply to me. And yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there was a funny piece in the New York Times. I think it was earlier this year. It was like the new social network, social media is newsletters. And I think especially if you're writing something that's in your voice, like you're not trying to turn it into a marketing thing, but it sounds like it's from you and like you're sitting down on a Sunday evening. I mean, one of my favorite newsletters from a local organization here in Brooklyn, one that like, yeah, they'll tell you about the show that's going on, but the top of it, it feels like the diary of the artistic director. I'm like, oh, that's how Brian's doing. Okay. Yeah. Like, cool. Yeah. I've just checked in with a human being. It has that potential to break through to you in that way. Totally. I, I have a, a several groups that are themed around dogs that I moderate and look after. And every email I finish, and these are comedy emails. I know even like ones that I, you know, have related to dogs most of the time. I just add at the end, I go, P.S., this is my favorite one of this month or whatever it is. And just put a picture of a dog at the end. And I, and like one or two times, you know, out of every email, someone will reply and go, good choice this time. 
time. Good chat. It's just nice. It's just a nice way of chatting to people. I mean, one person did reply and say, I'm more of a cat person. And I was like, well, I don't care. Like, sorry, but I'm not going to take pictures of cats specifically for you. Oh, I can't please everybody. But no. yeah, it's, um, I mean, these percentages may have shifted, but you know, like <laughs> 10 years ago, the adage was that you want to spend 70% of the time that you're connected with people. Um, and this was on social media in particular, but I think it attracts to newsletters and general communication. 70% of the time, you're just connecting. You're sharing content, you're sharing your personality, you're talking to people, and 30% of the time you're making an ask. So like what you're talking about where you're just, you're keeping in touch, you are including a good dog, stuff like that becomes really important so that when you do need to pipe up and say, hey, mm -hmm. I've got this thing going on, whether that's support me mm -hmm. or come to my show, it's fine. Like you've mm -hmm. developed that relationship of a like dog loving and occasional cat loving community. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, uh, it's Gary Vaynerchuk has a really good book on that where he says, uh, it's called Jab, Jab, Punch. It's you do two for every three posts you do, two should be, have I got this right? You're nodding. So I hope I've got this right. Every two should be just here's some fun content and the third one should be here's something I'm selling um, so that not everything I mean I don't stick with that as religiously as I think he says in fact more often than not, I post <laughs> stuff that's just hey here's free content and then do a sale thing when I need to but I definitely feel like people need to spread out there I'm set I'm building up money or I'm trying to do something posts because uh, there are a few people who don't really use social media over here um, for anything other than I have a show and I understand that is why they've subscribed a lot of them for a reason but equally at a certain point not every retweet is going to be some show that I can get to because I'm not in every city you got to think about it from that perspective don't you absolutely and I understand some of the wariness around social media or even being unsure where and how to approach your communication practice in general mm -hmm. but sometimes thinking about it as an extension of what you're doing so whether it's the kind of jokes that you're working on or the way that you like to write a show treating it as that or treating it as thinking like with email in particular almost like you're just writing to a friend and setting up some kind of cadence for yourself like I, I don't know how often your newsletter goes out but I recommend like at least quarterly like if you can artists comedians out there just something where you're keeping in touch regularly and even if you don't have anything to sell being like well this is kind of where my brain is at this is the comedy special I just watched and here's a really good dog like <laughs> fucking brilliant that's what I want in my inbox you know this, this interesting thing so at the end of every show I basically say to people if you want to if you want to hear from me again when I'm in your city sign up write your city on it so I know when to email you and you hear from me three times a year and I email them uh, once when I'm coming on a preview date in their city if I do uh, mm -hmm. once when I'm going to Edinburgh because that goes to everyone because I don't know who's going to be coming up and once when I'm doing a tour date in their city and if I'm not doing a tour date they only get the one email every year and, and I tend to keep it like that because A I can't be bothered to do a quarterly I know that's not good but but I just can't like the amount of comedians I've unsubscribed to who just send me like sort of uh, uh, if it's not got, if it's got something like that in it's got something in it but sometimes you get an email from someone and I'm like you didn't need to send it like you've not linked me to anything fun or interesting Tim Ferriss is a really good one with this he did a, he does a really good email every week where he sends like five links out or something and I remember this 
I won't name the community because that's not fair because I know them. But, uh, but they, they asked me why I unsubscribed and I said, because the last email, the last two emails you've sent me had no links to anything and they didn't tell me anything about what you were doing. And it was just like sort of a bit of a bump paragraph of you saying, I am working on something, but I can't tell you much about it. And I was like, don't tease me. I've subscribed to here. So I know it's like, te- tease me if you're going to tell me in a week, oh, this was the thing I was mentioning. But don't, yeah, I don't need to know that. Yeah, it's a delicate balance. And that's why I think setting up and kind of what you do, where you're like, this is going to be my cadence. This is how often you're going to hear from me will help with those potential unsubscribes because you've already set that expectation. Like, Mm. okay, yeah, maybe I didn't love this email, but I'm not going to hear from you for three more months. Like, I can hang. And you mentioned that the next one will be chock full of stuff that I want to know. Cool. Okay. I can hang out in that. And like you do point to like how like that the the paragraph of like, okay, I'm just, I'm going to tease you. I'm not giving you anything. Hmm. How can you link out to other stuff? How can you show support for your community? Like if you're not doing something, how like take some other people up along with you. You've got a captive audience. So there's a little bit of world building that Hmm. you can do. And showing like, yeah, this is like kind of like I said, like this is what I'm excited about right now. And the more that it is just conversational and less promotional. I mean, I, I've been on the email list for a yoga studio for nearly three years now. I'm a pretty fast unsubscribe in general, just because I end up on so many lists. Mm-hmm. And years later, I still am read. I read it almost every week because it is so clearly this person sitting down to write like, oh, this is where I'm at this week and how I'm feeling about things and what I'm excited about. And I feel like I'm just hearing from a person. Yeah. And it's like, it's in a strange way, just a nice connection. Do you go every week though? Do you go to that yoga class? No, I probably only get to the studio like five times a year and yet I'm still on the email. And it's (laughs) every now and then it reminds me to be like, Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, I need to, like, mind you, this is the closest yoga studio to the office. Like, I should be getting there more often. But <laughs> yeah, there's just something about it that now, like, I'm in there with the regularity and it feels like, okay. It's like, this is a person that I don't really know. I've taken her class a couple of times, but now it just feels like a buddy. Yeah. Along those lines, screw fancy formatting. Like if you're going to send out something that's meant to be more conversational, like, nah, you don't need all the like bells and whistles. Like the more that it feels like it's just coming from you, the better. Completely. I, I recently discovered that myself. I, I used to spend ages designing the mailing list, putting my you know stuff in the header and all sorts of stuff like that. And I've noticed that people are much more receptive when it's just plain text, just me writing it out and you know maybe an image at the end a dog but aside from that just just literally get everyone you know sort of just they don't care they're, they're busy people they've got their own lives why why do they need to have sort of i don't know I, I i thought the reason i did it was because i used to get emails from Ticketmaster. they used to spend ages on you know their their branding at the top and then like banner images for loads of their shows and it used to and i used to look at it and go i want to be like Ticketmaster, but for my shows like a little version of it and then i was like you know what i, I why am i trying to be like Ticketmaster? why am i trying to emulate something like that I'm not that I'm just selling mine not everyone else's they're doing that because they have to market everything I don't have to. Um, so I completely understand that and um, good for people to hear <laughs> <laughs> I just said absolutely so my, my next question was going to be length of campaign so you said about a month is is usually the amount of time people do it for is there a good time of the month to begin a campaign and end a campaign and also is there a good length of campaign where you're not dragging it out for ages where people maybe get fed up of you sharing it. There isn't a particular point in the month, but during the week, we recommend Tuesday through Thursday. 
Okay. Yeah, and I think it runs a little counter to maybe when you might have more time on the weekends, but it's where we see most people being active and opening up emails, like doing all that work. So planning for something Tuesday through Thursday, trying to launch by late morning or early afternoon is what we recommend. Besides that, times of years, things to be wary of. I mean, I think most of the campaigns that we're talking about for the Edinburgh Fringe, mm-hmm. There might be some like little holidays, but you're not running into like a Christmas, for example, in the mm-hmm. same way or New Year's. But you do want to be mindful, like if there's a bank holiday, how is that going to throw people off? Like, are they going to be shutting their computers? Like maybe you mm-hmm. don't want to launch the day right after when everybody's coming back because they're just going to be like, oh God, what's happened <laughs> to my inbox? And if there is one in the middle of your campaign, be mindful of like, well, maybe then I need an extra day or so. Try not to end on a holiday or again, right after one. But length of campaign, 30 days tends to be nice. If you go above that or much beyond that, it's hard to maintain the momentum and kind of what you're pointing to where people feel like you're just hammering them with information. I think that mm-hmm. happens more when you're running for a couple of months. I mean, I actually, uh, one of the campaigns that I was working on a little bit that's ending today only ran for a week and they set a goal that they felt really good about and they sent out advanced emails to people. So about two weeks advance saying, Hey, we're getting ready to launch this thing. We're excited about it. We'll come back to you. It's only going to be up for a week. You got that much time to support and we're able to bring people in. And I think they, God, they raised another 500 or $600 over their goal. You can do it shorter. If you run for shorter than 30 days, you want to be mindful of it's going to give you less time to do wider promotion. So you're probably just looking mostly at galvanizing your closer community and closer network and making sure you're setting a goal that feels reachable, like you're ready to go running at that. I mean, the shortest campaign, there's there's an artist here in New York that for three years running now has done a 24-hour live stream campaign. It's not for the faint of heart. Yeah, every year I feel like I'm going to have a heart attack. But then he pulls it off and $10,000 later, he's like, great. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's you. I think maybe what you're pointing to is like, how do you make this fit into your life? Mm-hmm. And you do want to like, okay, maybe running for a month feels like too much because of rehearsals, because of day job, all of that. But maybe two weeks or maybe three weeks feels manageable. And if you do shorten it, just make sure that you're giving yourself some advanced promotion, that you are reaching out to people, that you are teasing the campaign, or at least like leading, leading people up to it in a way that they're, it's not a surprise when you drop a campaign into their inbox or onto their social media. Completely, yeah. I, in my experience of crowdfunding, there's, there's two trends I've sort of picked up on, and I'm nowhere near as you know, proficient at as, as you are, but um, I've noticed that as soon as you've got your first donor, that's sort of a marker that some people will then start to donate. Like you, you, a lot of people don't necessarily want to be first blood, if you like. They don't want to be the first one. And, and equally, uh, the last few days is, might be because I'm pushing it more in the last few days and I'm panicking, going, get me over that target, whatever. But it, a lot of people tend to get involved in the last minute and go, oh, oh yeah, I did say I would, I'll do that now. Do, do you notice, is that fair? Is that something? I mean, you've noticed any other trends in the middle that you know ebb and flow because again that's going to have an impact on people's length of time that they're committing to it and how much they're willing to put in at the start and at the end and in the middle yeah so there there are two things um but first in terms of like the pattern of funding you're right 
a lot of campaigns, especially <laughs> once you, if you're ready for 30 days, you see this kind of like steep takeoff in the first five to seven days, and then it roughly plateaus and like ticks up a little bit. And then in the last week, it runs up again. I've seen really like wonderful, inspiring and terrifying versions of this where people end up raising $20,000 in the last week um, that they have to raise in order to get there, but they do it. In the middle of the campaign, you do want to think about like, what are some strategies to inspire people to give and to pull that momentum back in? Because you're right, there is a bandwagon mentality when people see momentum or success, they are more likely to jump on board. So things like a matching challenge. If you have a donor who will match pledges or is like, I'll give you 500 quid to match, then like great for 48 hours. Tell everybody that their pledges are doubled in that window. And it does. We see that helps a lot. Doing backer challenges saying, hey, I need 50 people to give 10 pounds in the next day in the next three days and spend some time counting that down so that the emphasis is more on the people that mm -hmm. they can just be one of the people and giving them a particular level so they're not thinking about like oh okay where am i at like in terms of my paycheck how do i feel like make it something that's relatively realistic for most folks um, but that will still add up and be helpful and even before the campaign launches to make sure that you get off to that start and you're not just like hitting go and then crossing your fingers find 10 people to give and find 10 people to give that you know you can text and be like hey like the campaign is live can you get running at it now and have them lined up and as folks that understand you that love you that know that right like if they are able to give in that first half hour before you've emailed it out to anybody it will help inspire more people to jump on board and because of that funny funding graph that i mentioned before ideally you're raising 20 to 30 percent of your goal in the first 48 hours mm -hmm. and so you know having 10 people lined up will really help you a lot towards hitting that completely yeah yeah what are the biggest i'm gonna say errors people make on their crowdfunding like think just hiccups that you even notice when it's in you know sort of the draft phase when you're looking at it over or or during the campaign like what are what are issues that you notice people commonly mistakes let's put it that way that, that would come up for people who haven't crowdfunded before or who just are new to the whole concept of asking for money ahead of time for a show the most condensed and vague and i will explain it not sure i can put this in too is that they don't treat it as storytelling and mm. they don't think about community i think whether that's on the page itself like taking some space to talk about what you're making why you're making it who you are these opportunities sometimes the text can be really like quick and not like get into that world it might even be like copying pasting some of the marketing language and that's not what people are here for Mm -hmm. Like where crowdfunding is different, grant writing or marketing is that we really just want to hear from you. We mm -hmm. want to hear from the person behind the scenes, even to the point that one of my favorite campaigns, I think it starts out with the artist introducing herself like, hi, I'm Sasha. This is kind of who I am and what I do. And then getting into it. And like, it's all in, like, it feels like she's talking to you. And I think the same thing goes through how the approach is in social media and newsletter, where instead of it being like, let me bring you through this thing that I'm making and why I'm excited about it and why it's important to me, it's more of like an ask, like hands wide open, please give to me. They'll give to you, but take some time to celebrate what you're making and the community around you. I think not thinking about the community is another part of it. Like, who are you making this thing for? Mm -hmm. um, and trying to make sure that the page, the rewards, give people some footholds within that community if you're 
oh God, this, I can't believe this is the first thing that comes to my mind. If you're making a show about dinosaurs, like, and you're trying to... I'm on board. I'm on board. <laughs> welcome aboard. Uh, and you're trying to get other people who are into, into dinosaurs, like, okay, how are you making sure that they have some foothold there? Is it the images that you're using? Is it making sure that you mention certain kinds of dinosaurs or buzzwords or like something in the short description <laughs> that helps them climb aboard? Things like that. Are all of your reward tiers different dinosaur names? You know, mm-hmm. how do you make this page really about them? And just for fun, the other thing that's important, I think most people don't take a minute to do, we talk, we've talked a lot about goal in financial terms, but what else do you want to make happen? If you're going to spend upwards of 30 days screaming from the rooftops about what you're making and trying to gather community support for it, hopefully you're getting something else out of that. And whether that's, you know, the goal of using this as a bridge to begin talking to different community groups mm-hmm. or going even deeper into the tone of your piece and sharing some of your goals for that. I worked with a choreographer once who was making a piece that kind of at its heart, she just wanted to translate some of the inherent joy of dancing. Like when you were going balls to the wall and like moving, mm-hmm. she wanted to pass that along to the audience. And so finding ways to communicate joy was really intrinsic to her campaign and bringing people into that world. So at $100, if you back, she would make eight counts of dance for you, but you gave her a word that she would then turn into a phrase. And that phrase of movement may or may not have been included in the piece. And if you went, it became like this funny Easter egg kind of like, okay, did, you know, like, did I help inspire a little bit of this? Mm. Some of her communication strategies were really funny bits. Like, oh, she would take past rehearsal and performance images and she would Photoshop a pony onto it. The piece was called A Dance for Dark Horses. And she called the pony Phil the Philanthropony. Cute. <laughs> It's it's cute. It's kind of goofy, and it just made you laugh a little bit. Like it mm-hmm. did bring a little bit of joy into your life. So, if you look at what you're making and why you're making it, can this campaign be, in a strange but beautiful way, an extension of that? Mm-hmm. Completely. So, for me, I whenever I do a show, especially at the festival, I think about the story people will take away from my show because I think, especially with comedy, unless you're doing uh, something like Hannah Gadsby's show where there's where there's clear clearly an overarching you know message of it not just it being funny i think a lot of comedians and quite rightly come up here uh to the festival and it it is just funny like it is an hour of really funny joke and that's not to put down just funny at all it's not to uh put up if you like uh, shows that have a message but i think a show that has a message is slightly easier to put into a crowdfunding arena just because it means that you kind of have a a hook that people can go oh hey i know someone who is in that or i know someone who would like this so how would you advise someone who literally is just coming up to do an hour of jokes sells that is it just put your sense of humor into the campaign is it just make the thing really funny and and when it comes into that or if it is that so there's a lot of questions in one go i'm aware of that are there any types of humor or shows that you won't allow on the platform because there's a whole thing especially over in the uk at the moment with uh, politically correct comedy accounts being taken down on social media if they're not approving of the content even if it doesn't break guidelines and all sorts of issues that are coming out of that so where does kickstarter stand on that sort of thing okay i'm gonna try to work backwards and if i miss a question bring me back on track because i think you're pointing to kind of first and foremost like what is there censorship what are your rules on kickstarter and i think we do we'll start there um we do 
have some rules around like not allowing hate speech, but we generally try to be a pretty open platform for creativity. If you are making something creative for the world, welcome aboard. We have pretty hard rules around, let's see, I think the ones that would matter here, things involving weapons, drugs, liquor, animals. Like somebody, I think, tried to ship, what was it? Was it an octopus or jellyfish across the country one time? And we're like, no, like we're, we're not here for that. But there are, if you go onto our platform, a list of prohibited items and some like general guidelines for making sure that your project is within what we do. We don't support violence. Yeah. So we try to be pretty transparent about like how you may or may not fall within that. Is it As- basically, so it sounds like everything that you're not allowed to take in an airport, like <laughs> guns, that sort of thing. Is that fair? that's pretty fair that's pretty fair i think it doesn't quite it doesn't quite cover our policies around hate speech and things along those lines but that that you'll want to like peek onto the rules um just you know if you're worried about it besides that you asked the question about like okay i'm just making something that is straight up comedy there is no issue at the heart of it okay have some fun with your page like do make it funny crack some jokes again like bring people into the world of it maybe this is a nice opportunity to have some fun where instead of doing a traditional kickstarter video ask you just do like a tight two minute you know like Mm -hmm. do something like that i i would encourage you to lean in lean into that direction I, i think there's still depending on the topics you're covering a lot of fun to be had there and a lot of area and room to play to really get into it. But yeah, at that point, like let your inner self shine. Not to be like too West Coast hippie about it, but like, <laughs> yeah, just be you. That's what we want. Yeah. And it all comes back to that, doesn't it? The message, you, what your goals are and how they could, how you can have a community that supports that. Um, mm-hmm. I remember you, you told me, I knew, I knew Fleabag was on the platform, but I didn't know it was your first, it was, was it the first Kickstarter or was it the first Edinburgh Kickstarter? What was the relationship there? It was, no, this one came in 2013, I think. So it was a few years after the platform came around. And I mean, it's, it's fun to have a look. You have Phoebe in a kind of bad Batman costume like drinking a beer on a rooftop somewhere as the main campaign image. So even just as a piece of history and, and seeing where something starts, it is a very fun campaign to have a look at. And a nice example of how like in all of these campaigns, I think over 500 of them now over the years, really amazing things have happened that have come through that. I don't think Fleabag is the only example. I mean, the very, the very, very, very first Edinburgh French campaign was one from New York and this incredible artist, Cynthia Hopkins, who I think after taking the piece to Edinburgh French toured the show, like definitely around the US internationally a bit. And for the corner of the performance world that I kind of come from before Kickstarter, it's a work that really kind of defined a certain era of the field. So that that was going to be my next question. I was going to ask how many uh, Edinburgh Fringe, uh, or how many show-based campaigns you have uh, at any one time or every year? Just because it's probably worth people knowing. Uh, the problem is, should people see them as competition? Because I feel like it, they they wouldn't. The only reason they'd be competition is because people have a limited amount of money at a certain point to spend. But I think if you're targeting your community, you're selling it on an emotional level, which means it's not really competition in the same way that it would be if it was marketing. 
but I might be wrong on that. No, you, you put it exactly right. I, I hear uh, a worry, a fear around, well, if there are too many campaigns running, like what, who's going to give to what? But really, most people's communities are more distinct than they think. I mean, maybe you're like the show-going audience, the people who actually are the butts in the seats. There might be overlap there, but like we talked about earlier, those are actually some of the hardest people to get in touch with. But your own community is your own. So I, they're really, we don't see that actually impacting campaigns. Mm. The potential for um, like donor fatigue really isn't there. And I mean, I think it's such an opportunity to be part of, I mean, certainly as we get into the time of the fringe, we do what we can to point people back to the campaigns that have run, to pick from them and curate from them and try to drive people there. So if you've launched on the platform, it just means you're part of a group that will try to do what we can to lift you up as well within the festival or yeah, when we're, when we're on the ground at the festival. Yeah, totally. What, what's like, cause I assume because you see so many of them from the back end and, and you talk to so many of the performers and, and the people running them, what's like one unusual lesson or, or thing that you've learned from seeing so many campaigns that you, that sort of stands out to you. Maybe it's not for every campaign, but it's something that you just think, I would have never thought that would have worked for a campaign or, or the way they handled that was really interesting. This isn't unusual necessarily, but I got, there was one of the artists this year that really having a hard time with a particular kind of community group that she wanted to show for the campaign. And the feedback that she kept getting was, you know, like, we don't feel like we have money right now. Like just a little broke, like as we all are sometimes like it happens. <laughs> and so she listened. And I think a lot of the time with campaigns and unfortunately with communication, we look at it as one way mm -hmm. and you've got to treat it as a dialogue. And so this, this creator heard that feedback, created a new reward level and was like, listen, okay, this is at one pound. I really just want you to be part of my community. I want you to like be able to get the updates. I want you to participate. I want to see you counted amongst the people that are there so i think that i mean yes there's a nice example of like okay switching tracks coming up with a new strategy mid-campaign to do what you need to mm. do which yes like be nimble like mm -hmm. plan out what your communication strategy the different goal points you want to be at throughout the campaign but also know that you might need to do something new in the middle of it and that's okay mm. give yourself the room to be creative but also make sure that you're listening and that you take the time to listen. Even if you can do that before the campaign launches, that you send the campaign to a few people that represent communities you want to be in touch with. Whatever okay. feedback you get, it's important. Completely, completely. Um, one of the things before we finish, uh, I just wanted to talk, or I wanted you to talk about is, and I wrote this down when we spoke before, so if I've written it down wrong, I'm very sorry, but you're now, well not you, but Kickstarter is now a public benefit company. Yes. Can we talk about that? Just because I found that really interesting and, and I think it definitely sets Kickstarter apart from other crowdfunding platforms and the way they operate. So do you want to explain what that is to, um, cause I didn't know anything about it. So ex explain it just as if I'm an idiot now. <laughs> so that. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, you know, not hard. Cause I think I was also unfamiliar with okay. this term. I um, was considering joining the team here. And uh, a public benefit corporation, it's a different way of designating a company. And I think coming from the world that I come from, you usually think of charities, nonprofits, and then corporations. And it turns out there's something in the middle, which is we are part of a group of companies that are this. 
maybe the simplest explanation of a public benefit corporation, PBC, is that we are not as beholden to shareholders. So most corporations, it's all about like maximizing profit and giving money back to your investors. And we put our mission and our values up above that. We are not a public company. We are still private. So that means like we actually, we're not inviting more people to invest in us. Like we try to keep our margins low so that really, truly like the focus is on making sure we have impact in the way that we want to do that. There are some fun bells and whistles that come with that. Uh, 5% of our profits every year go back into the community. Half of that goes to social justice organizations and half of that goes to arts and education. So we do that kind of work, but the core of it really is the mission, the values, all of that, our charter is on the website. And the thing that I, I love about it and that kind of from day one, I was like, okay, coming from working in performance venues, I'm ready for this, is that our, our mission is pretty simple. We're here to make sure that the creative community is able to survive and thrive. Mm. Like that's what we want to see happen. And we want to make sure that people have the tools they need to make their work. Mm. So like, from a practical level, that means that, and I won't name any other competitors, but other competitors are more driven by profit than than the actual art that they're trying to help create. Exactly. And yeah, we won't get into competitors. I mean, even when you look at corporations in general, that's what you usually see. It's it's putting money above people, above mission. Um, yeah, this is this could be a whole other podcast topic. <laughs> I think there there are some companies, there are some CEOs that are now coming to head with that. I'm like, okay, like what are we really about? What are we spending our time on and what good are we doing in the world? And sometimes you just want to be able to focus on doing the good. And I think that's one of the unique things around Kickstarter, especially like in the, in the funding sphere. Yeah, I, I think profit and business and corporate, all these sort of words have got such, uh, have got such dirty connotations at the moment. And, and it's, it's, I don't personally have a problem with a company making a profit. I don't personally have a problem with a company uh, having stakeholders and actually needing to supply them with something back for the money they put in. But I do like the fact there are companies out there that are not, as you say, beholden to that and are more interested in the art of creating things and, and telling stories. Oh, yeah. I was only going to add to that, that when you're not beholden to your shareholders, you're more you care more about what the community wants and needs. And that's where you determine your strategy. It's based off of the people that you're serving. Completely. These are the last quick fire questions. So um, take as long as you like to do, but these are, <laughs> the, these are usually the harder questions to answer, but I always say, you know, gotta be quick with them. So good luck. <laughs> What's one unpopular opinion you have about crowdfunding? Oh my God, this is a hard question. <laughs> um, Oh God, what would I say? That it, that it is, I don't know if this is unpopular, but I think it's not common, that it's promotion. Mm-hmm. That it, it isn't just about the fundraising. That it should really be more about relationships and community. I think most people look at it as money. And I think it is so much more than that, especially mm-hmm. if you're doing it right. So we'll go with that. Completely. What's the biggest mistake you've seen? A, normally I'd ask what the biggest mistake you've made is, but I'm going to say, what's the biggest mistake you've seen a crowdfunding campaign make and what did you learn from it? I actually, I think I lump my, like even historically self in here, um, launching a campaign and not really having a good strategy <laughs> to back it up. And I, I mean that from here's, 
the kind of story and content and what I want to do throughout the campaign down to how do I want to thank people? How do I want to show gratitude? So I think that's, that's the biggest when people launch and they just launch mm. and then they let it sit there. Okay. What's the biggest misconception people have about crowdfunding and what would you say to them to dispel it? God, these are hard questions. The biggest, right. <laughs> <laughs> the biggest, my mis- favorite part of the interviews. <laughs> yeah. And I like it because you can actually see me here like, wow, if you want. <laughs> no, 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 it's fine. The biggest misconception might be, mm, yeah, I mean, I think I still keep going back to what I said before where like, yeah, it's just funding mm. or that like rewards need to be things like enamel pins or tote bags. Like, no, people don't, they're not in it for the stuff. 30% of people in di- that support dance and theater campaigns choose no reward at all. Mm. Like they're actually not in it for the stuff. They're in it for you. Mm, that's cool. What's the most interesting thing that you and your team do that nobody ever gets to see? Um, oh yeah. Cause we, we kind of jokingly call ourselves a mock or model UN for the creative industries. We, what do we do? We're pretty constantly scheming up new ways that we can creatively uh, get information out to people. So we do that together and that takes its shape, whether from, I did a, a kind of crowdfunding boot camp earlier this year for folks. We've had started to host digital conferences, things like that. And behind the scenes, we have a lot of cute dogs running around here. So that might not be something that you're imagining, but usually there's at least one that's over in the corner that, you know, if you're having a stressful thing and you turn around, there's something small and fluffy and loving. I will be popping into your office when I'm next in. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> there are so many dogs for you mm. to admire here. I'll, um, I'll send you one dressed as a baked potato at Halloween Aww. after we get off this call. <laughs> That's very cute. Um, I got sent a dog that was, I've sent it to you after this, but I got sent a dog that was dressed up like a Ghostbuster and one that was sent uh, dressed up like Slimo and they were hanging out. And I was like, I know. I was like, uh, excuse me, I need to buy a dog and some costumes. That's my new thing. Yeah. I have two photos to send you because okay. one of the office dogs was dressed up as a Ghostbuster with Slimer on his back. That's better. That's slightly better. That's better. <laughs> I like that. Send it through. Okay. Who do you think is the most underrated person in the crowdfunding industry? The underrated person? Person. Oh. Or, or you can expand it to underrated part of the industry. I'm going to say it's the person that if you are running a campaign that you're really hesitant to ask for money because you're like, I, I don't know if they're going to, probably more likely to give than you think they are and maybe even more likely to give than like your best friend. There's, I hear a lot of surprise from time to time from people who have run campaigns like, oh, there are people I thought would be showing up immediately that like maybe didn't give it all or gave it the last minute. And then somebody that I knew from high school that I haven't talked to in 10 years who like threw $25 in. So mm. when you're thinking of, I guess it's not quite underrated, but like all these people in corners of your life that have like played a role at some point, like they're there. Don't take them for granted. Mm, completely. Um, what do you think is the biggest problem in your industry and how would you go about solving it? Oh, uh, biggest problem. <laughs> Sorry. No, 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 no. I love it. Uh, Biggest problem in the industry, I think maybe in general, and this is not just Kickstarter, but in funding, the question of how do you get people beyond a given network? 
to support something, to take a chance on it. And that's something that I saw well before I joined Kickstarter when I was working in marketing and communications. It's, it's more challenging to get people into a space now mm-hmm. and to get them into a space where they are just like supporting kind of at will. So how, how do we as a field think more about giving people reasons to support something just because Mm. not because they're going to get a cool watch out of it or something to put on their table, but just because it's something that should exist in the world Mm -hmm. period. I think that's a bit on us as an industry. It's on others as well, but I think that, you know, whether that's a problem or an extraordinary opportunity somewhere in between. Mm -hmm. What's one thing you wish you were better at? (sighs) You were, uh, sorry you and the team obviously yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you thank yeah. you for generalizing it <laughs> oh I wish I wish we had more hours in the day <laughs> no because I think especially especially when it comes to the time of year when Edinburgh Fringe is going there you just want to be able to give so much specific individualized support mm-hmm. but you gotta sleep at some point yeah. you like gotta feed the cats like you, you gotta do those things mm-hmm. so I wish that there was just a little bit more time to be doing that even more intensely and what's one thing you think you're great at personally and it's like the thing that I take the greatest joy in is helping you as an artist as a maker to tap into why you are doing what you're doing and to share that with the world and to help guide you through that process and bring you back to it as much as I can be one-on-one or at large I'm a pretty good art cheerleader Mm. thank you very much for coming on thank you so much Simon this is delightful that was Jess. Oh, God, I loved talking to her. I loved learning about crowdfunding and how it works. I'm a massive social media nerd. And so for me, it was really exciting to hear more about how social media has had an impact on this, the 10,000 fans theory, the amount of people you need to be funded, the way that people can discover your campaigns, the way that they've been experimenting with that, the way that they're not driven by investors, but instead by creativity and artists. I loved it. I really am a massive supporter of Kickstarter and crowdfunding in general. I liked her thoughts on the cost of the Edinburgh Fringe and how that's going up and I know they're not necessarily working on improving that or changing that but at least they are trying to redress the balance on how much of a risk you take by going there by being there to support artists and if you do want to help lower the costs of doing the Edinburgh Festival there is a link in the show notes to a petition that I started with Equity that um, has I think it's got 30 something thousand signatures now which is quite a chunk of the Uh, industry that are behind the idea of having more affordable housing so please sign that please get involved with that that'd be amazing also if you want to learn more about building your own audience online which would help you with crowdfunding you can buy my book it's called how to make a living by working for free it is five pound digitally or 13 pound including postage and packaging on my website there is a link for that in the show notes there's also an email address for me if you want to get a hold of me and ask how to buy it if you have a problem there's also jess's email in the show notes so if you wanted to contact her and ask her any more questions feel free i really enjoyed this one i had a great time if you are before you go anywhere if you are in australia uh, ideally perth adelaide wellington or dunedin um, i know the last two are in new zealand but um all right are you if you are in australia or new zealand ideally perth adelaide wellington or new zealand or new zealand oh, Dunedin, it's a long day, guys. Could you please buy a ticket to my 2019 award-winning five-star reviewed sold-out at the Edinburgh Festival run shows at your festivals? There's links in the show notes for all of those. If you don't live in any of those places, but you know someone who does, please pass on the link. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for subscribing. And thank you very much 
for rating and donating if you do. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.